0: Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'll be your host, Ewan Laidlaw, an ambulatory equine vet based in Northumberland. And for this episode, I'll be joined by James Crabtree and Rory Gormley, both of Equine Reproductive Services in Yorkshire. James graduated from Edinburgh Vet School in 2001. I hasten to add that this is only the second best vet school in Scotland. After four years of mixed practice, James embarked upon back to back stud seasons, visiting New Zealand and and working in the Northern Hemisphere. Whereabouts did you work, James, in your stud seasons? So,
1: in the Southern Hemisphere, I worked a couple of um, seasons in Australia, uh, one in um, Victoria a place called Avenal and another another season in a town called Toowoomba in outside Brisbane and then another what know, four four seasons in um, New Zealand three at Hamilton Veterinary Services and I did one season at uh, Equibreed New Zealand so yeah it was uh, a nice varied time
0: and um and 2010 James achieved RCBS certificate in equine stud medicine Um, and the following year he was made a lecturer at Liverpool Vet School. More recently in 2013 he became a director of Equine Reproductive Services in Yorkshire. Um, My second guest is Rory Gormley who graduated from the best vet school in Scotland in a vintage year of 2011. (laughs) The highlight of this was undoubtedly being student co-president with me. Um, After graduation, Rory spent two years in in mixed practice in deepest, darkest Ayrshire in Scotland before embarking upon stud seasons between Australia and Yorkshire. After jet-setting around, he went to Fettered Equine Hospital in Ireland where he worked servicing um, a, a number of high-profile clients, including Coolmore Stud, and he then rejoined Equine Reproductive Services in 2018. Along the way, Rory um, achieved an RCVS certificate in equine stud medicine in 2016, and last year became a diplomat of the American College of Therogenologists. Well done, Rory.
2: Thank you, Yuan. It's good to hear you're still dining out on... The presidency 10 years
0: later. (laughs) Well, I think it might have been my highlight. (laughs) This conversation um, sparked an obvious joke about a Scotsman, an Englishman and an Irishman. But given this is a serious podcast for serious equine vets, we might leave that um, until afterwards. Um, although we might still conclude it in the recording, given how awful the weather is in Northern England at the moment, where we're currently in lockdown 3.0. So if you're still listening at the end, maybe we can cheer you up a bit. <laughs> Our topic for this episode um, is a clinical commentary, which was originally published in Equine Veterinary Education last year, 2020. Um, the title of which is Female Caudal Reproductive Tract Abnormalities. This, uh, this is probably fair to say quite a heavy article and and I am certainly no expert in in equine stud medicine. so hopefully if James and Rory can provide the knowledge and I can probe them with a few questions then we can we can broaden the impact of this article to people that might not necessarily have read it. the the clinical commentary is is um, based on an article which is also published in Eve by McCarthy and others um, entitled The Occurrence of a Vaginal Septum and a full Diagnosed with Pyometra. The other day there when you were on the phone, Rory, you, you summarised this very eloquently. Would you mind doing so again for, for the benefit of the podcast?
2: Yeah, so it's it's an interesting case because uh, these, these uh, vaginal septae are rare. Um, they're very rarely seen um, and they're never diagnosed in foals um because you don't tend to look in there until the horse is a lot older um and the other uh, component to the case report was the fact it had pyometra, which as well is um extremely unusual uh, to find in a foal what, what, what age is the
0: foal in this instance rory
2: it was 10 week, 10 weeks old it, it uh, presented with a vaginal discharge um and the clinicians went about, uh, you know, the, the, the standard procedure, really. They, um, using endoscopy and a speculum, investigated and found the discharge was coming from the uterus. Um, and within the uterus, they find a vast quantity of, of inspeciated purulent material, which they then set about removing with various lavages and and local and systemic antibiotics and got on top of it but during that um procedure they also uh, identified this this vaginal septum
0: Hmm. and you're thank you very much for that rory and your article your your clinical commentary um then introduces this topic by going way back and to some embryology that very word fills me with, with dread. So without getting into too much detail, James, um, please could you explain a bit about how se- sexual differentiation and embryo development works? Um, we'll, we'll go through each sex, but maybe you could start with um, with an instance of the female first, please.
1: Thanks, Ewan. It's actually very complicated and very in-depth, and the the physical aspects of it are probably best illustrated in a drawing. Um, And yet, I mean, Rory and I condensed sexual differentiation from several book chapters down into about 500 words, and I didn't think it was possible to do it in much less than that. But I I think in simple terms, we can probably say that that at the beginning, the zygote is sexually indifferent. They're the same whether you're male or female. And at a certain point in time, the the genotype, our genes, kick in to determine whether or not we are going to be a a male or a female embryo. Now, you've given me the good one because the the female is the default pathway. So without any additional signals, we are going to become female. And that sexual indifferent phase ends with the signal for the male, but we're going to go down the female route. So the embryo has got everything that it needs, and it's got a series of paired ducts. And the the ones for the for the female are the malarian ducts, which are the future oviduct, uterus, paranesa paramesent nephric ducts, and um, you have the gonads, which are obviously then can become the ovaries or the or the gonad in the, the the male gonad, the testicle, and then everything sort of pulls together and and lines up with itself, and these paired malarian ducts join together. And then when they've joined together, these tubular structures, the center of them dissolve, which becomes the uterine body and the uterine horns. And then meeting that, there's different layers of of structure um, in the embryo which join together. And actually, they they form a solid structure um, called the vaginal plate, which then goes through a process of change where the center of it dissolves to become the vagina um, and the area of the cervix. The difficult thing is, is where this vaginal plate ends or starts, and the tubular structures with the malarian ducts um, starts, uh, and that's that's open to some debate. Um, and then all of the genital folds and things they are the, they are the structures that shape and form into the uh, vulva and the clitoris.
0: that. So the the female is the default pattern as we've just heard from James there so what happens differently in the male instance rory
2: so in the male instance where you obviously have a y chromosome um on that y chromosome is a gene called the sry gene which encodes sry protein and if it's pre- present it kicks off the whole process which directs development down the male route but critically um with S, the SRY protein, which activates Sox nine and does all sorts of other things. Your your bipotential gonad uh, activates activates what? Sorry, Rory. Sox nine, another gene which is actually present in both male and female embryos. Um, it's inhibited in in the on the female uh, pathway, but yeah, critically, your bipotential gonad becomes uh, the testes, and um. Once the the once the bipotential gonad differentiates into a testicular structure, and you have your Sertoli cells and Leydig cells, it's the production of anti-malarian hormone by the Sertoli cells and testosterone by the Leydig cells that then directs all those other structures that that James mentioned down the male route as opposed to the female route. So. Your, your anti-malarian hormone causes the malarian ducts, which become the uterus in the female. It causes them to regress and anti-malarian hormone. So they disappear. And the wolfian ducts, which disappear in the female via programmed cell death, they're maintained by the testosterone produced by the, the, the testes. Uh, and then the other structures, the urogenital sinuses that, that um uh, James talked about that becomes the the caudal vagina and the vestibule. They become the prostate and the male urethra. The genital tubercle, instead of becoming the clitoris, becomes the prepuce and penis. And the, the labioscrotal fold, instead of becoming the labiae, uh, fuses together and forms the scrotum. So that's pretty much all directed by testosterone and dihydrotestosterone.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much for that. That I managed I managed to follow that. I, I suppose it's always amazing um how I always found the embryology at university fascinating and a lot of those terms which you've just went through do all ring a bell. And I'm sure most of us in ambulatory practice at least don't carry that information around in our head together, but it sounds familiar and, and that all that all makes sense. So in summary, um the the zygote but uh, uh, as by potential is that right Yep,
2: yeah, that's right yeah. and,
0: and then if you if you're male you have an sry gene on your y chromosome and and that essentially codes for for the, the all the change from the default female and, and makes you into a male yeah so we then, If we then go on from that explanation of what occurs in the normal instance to when there's a, a disorder of sexual development, and in your article you, you listed three, three opportunities or three um, headings, if you like, for where, where these disorders could, could be grouped under, um, namely chromosome abnormalities, exposure to exogenous compounds. And, and idiopathic, so it's a no-known cause. So I wonder if we might take each of these in turn, and um, maybe Rory, if you could give us a few examples of how disorders of sexual development are caused by chromosomal abnormalities, please. Okay, so the most well-known
2: um, chromosomal causes of, of these disorders of sexual differentiation involve abnormalities of chromosomal number. So the most prevalent uh, one we see in the equine species is X monosomy. So it's Turner syndrome in in humans, um,
0: and it's is that, is that X not
2: exactly, exactly. That's where um, there is a a an absent X chromosome, um, and largely the the development of the embryo. Follows a relatively normal pathway, and, and typically, you don't see any major phenotypic abnormalities in these cases. But what you do find is is infertility, um, because there are no oocytes on these ovaries, because the oocytes need two X chromosomes uh, to maintain viability. So th- th- these ones are the ones we're most likely to see, but they're also in many cases, hidden, um, and you only discover them, you know, once you're basically in the stocks, uh, hoping hoping to line this mare up for breeding.
0: How how common is X not in
1: horses? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it, I think it's fair to say that uh, all of these disorders of sexual development are in the rare category. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we've we all seen cases and then it, the hard thing is trying to estimate, well, how many mares have I seen? Well, I would have thought I'd have seen more than 10,000 mares and I've only seen three three cases, which I think were suspect of being a, a Turner syndrome or a, or a 63XO. So three in 10,000 is pretty rare.
2: Yeah, it would just be a guess to be able to assign a number to it. Um, and with the whole karyotyping availability, which which I'm sure we'll come to um, in a little bit. Um, Sorry,
0: Rory, Rory what, what's karyotyping?
2: Well, well, we can we can talk about it now. I mean, basically, um, if you have a case and you're convinced or, or suspicious there may be an issue um, with the chromosomal complement of this particular horse, uh, you can send off a blood sample to be analysed. Um, for chromosome number and more uh, specific chromosomal testing procedures can be done as well.
0: So that's, that's, just, that's like, just off a blood
2: sample. That's just off a blood sample. Yeah, they they, they um, look at the um, nuclei of, of lymphocytes. Um, it's in a heparin sodium blood sample. So it's very straightforward really, but that's how these diagnoses are made. I mean, you can sample, amniotic fluid as well Uh, that can be done from various tissue types but classically it's lymphocytes from a blood sample.
0: um, I wonder any other chromosomal abnormalities James that you think are of particular note?
1: Well when we spoke about sexual differentiation we talked about the the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is what determines male from female and really, it determines that because it carries the s r y gene, so what you can get are, are sex reversals now you can that means that you can be genotypically male so x y but phenotypically female, and that can be because the s r y gene that's on the y chromosome has has gone awry it's gone missing it might not be there um and so that's where our karyotype our Long line of chromosomes all lined up, end up with a different result because one of the genes that is supposed to be on that chromosome has has gone somewhere else and it's it's disappeared or it's different, and thrown into that mix are those that we call the mosaics. Now, the, how do you how do I describe what? Well, we all know what a mosaic is. You know, a tiled pattern made up of lots of different things, lots of different tiles or different colours. And essentially, what a mosaic is, is that the genetic material from one group of cells is difficult from, or sorry, different from the genetic material from a different group of cells. So these horses are really, really difficult to find because 80% of their DNA might be X Y, and 20% of the DNA um, or the chromosomes might be X O. And so they're extremely difficult to find in a single blood sample. And actually what's needed to detect some of those individuals is a mixture of blood and tissue samples and all sorts of other things.
0: And pulling this back to to practice, are those likely to be infertile mares?
1: Yes, they are. Um, There are are some reports of mosaic horses. So some of their chromosomes are are normal and some are abnormal of actually producing foals. But if we remember, you know, our chromosomes are made up of half of from one parent and half from the other parent. So if we've got a, a mare with a chromosomal abnormality and, and that um, cell is the one that's going to divide and we're going to split that DNA and put it in half in one egg and half in another egg. And then we've got our sperm cell that's got the other 50 percent complement of genetic material that's going to make us whole again if you've got a mixture of DNA abnormalities, it's not necessarily going to be in every egg. So we can see very subtle fertility differences, or if the mix is right, we can see some quite dramatic um, anatomical differences, even in a phenotypically female horse or a phenotypically male horse, we can see quite significant and interesting things occur.
0: Leaving chromosomal abnormalities to one side for now, if we go back... Um, to our discussion earlier about disorders of sexual dis- development. One thing which I know I is mentioned in your article, but, but then not um, expanded upon, is how disorders of sexual development might be due to exposure to exogenous compounds. I, I'm aware that this might be a slightly difficult topic to, to talk about, but it's something which, as a general practitioner, in the field I always consider if i'm treating a, a, a mare which i know to be pregnant or suspect to be pregnant um i always kind of paused before giving a, a, a drug for for fear for for fear that I, I do some harm and always kind of consider that it, can you as experts in the field um Rory and james give us any examples of these compounds that you should be wary of it's a difficult
2: it's a it's a difficult question to answer, especially in the equine species, I mean there are teratogenic compounds out there. Um, the most famous one would be the lidamide, obviously, in in that human mothers um, were exposed to previously, um, and in sheep, you know, one one example would be cyclopia, the the alkaloid that that causes these cyclops lambs. Um, You know, and there are all sorts of of examples, but in in the equine species, there's just not an awful lot um, of of information out there. I mean, the drugs we use on a regular basis in pregnant mares, there's no indication that they cause problems. But the fact is, we don't know and we do need to be careful. Um, What are your thoughts on it, James?
1: Well the, the the classic one that springs to mind which always used to even concern me when I was dispensing it to clients was when it was on the market was grizia fulvin that was a known teratogen mm-hmm. and we were always case you know for treatment of ringworm we were always cautious when we were telling advising clients on how to use that with it being an oral product as well um and we always stayed clear of it um, but I totally agree with you about the vast majority of products that we use uh, during pregnancy, have no indication or license for during pregnancy, and that's a that's a function of how our drugs are, are licensed, and it's it's something as practitioners, um, just like you, you and we we are always concerned about that, and you know everything we do nowadays is about in making informed decisions, and our clients are having to make informed decisions, and we're having to draw to it their attention that the products that we're not using or that we are using are uh, off label or off license. But most of the routine drugs that we think about um, are not known teratogens or, um, or, or known for um, causing disorders of sexual development. I mean, the, the classic one in, in humans is diethrol, di- 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 which, which caused a range of things in, in humans uh, when pregnant mothers were treated with it, um, including very specifically uh, disorders of sexual development.
2: Yeah, and it, it, it's actually, a, it's a big tangent, really, um, which we maybe shouldn't venture too far down. But while the drugs we use routinely aren't, we don't believe them to be teratogenic, um, you know, we need to think about whether they are safe in pregnancy and and just be, be confident that we have a clinical justification, for example, to sedate a, a late pregnant mare.
0: When you're thinking you bring into the, the, you just mentioned sedation there, Rory, would it be a reasonable argument to your minds that sedating a mare, therefore causing it less anxiety and less physical um, harm, potentially, because if you sedate it to stand still and doesn't bash itself around, um, is that a justification uh, is is physical trauma likely to cause abortion more so than 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 the tomodine and butorphanol? Do you, Do you mean in in a in an injury? Type? Yeah, or or in any sort of instance where you might seek to sedate a, a mare, um, if if it's rather than creating distress for the animal, you sedate it. Um, is that a justification? Uh, I know what you're saying here. Whether
2: Minimising stress to that mare is going to reduce the likelihood of her aborting. I I don't know that the evidence is great that, um, you know, acute short-term episodes of stress in a prey species like a horse would lead to convincingly to abortion. But certainly there are loads of situations where it's safer for the animal and safer for yourself um to give a sensible dose of sedation as long as the owner is aware of the potential and unlikely negative effects on on the foal.
0: so is that you're saying it mainly comes back to communication with owner
2: largely comes down to communication with the owner
0: absolutely it often does do you agree with that james
1: I do and it's I often find it very much easier when we've we've got some grey hair and experience to handle those situations as well and for fear of falling down the rabbit hole and getting lost on a subject there is so little information out there and therefore there is a lot of divided opinion but just going back to your your question about sedation that there have been some experimental studies on the effects of sedation in late pregnant mares and there's been no demonstration that there's any long-term negative effects or the potential to cause, um, you know, pregnancy failure. And so I think it is prudent if a mare requires sedation for the clinical management of her um, to, to give um, cautious doses. I mean, what is cautious? I mean, as like if you're within the data sheet recommendations, then I think you're, you're pretty cautious. If I was having to um, give greatly in excess of the data sheet recommendations, then I might have to rethink what was happening. Interestingly, non-steroidals have been demonstrated uh, to have effects on mares, um, but none have managed to block parturition or foaling, which I think is important. So what little information out there is useful. But if we drag it back to disorders of sexual development, I think one of the key places, which we don't always think about, is it safe, is, is that really early phase between conception and maybe 100 days when all of the organs of the fetus are developing. And, and that's a phase where we just really don't know what effect we have with treatments that we give. And and that is just an honest, hand on heart answer. We, we just really don't know. We can extrapolate from other species, but all of the drugs that are in routine use are not known to cause any significant issues, fortunately.
2: Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point because there are some very narrow windows where critical processes are taking place during organ development in those early days. Like, like the example in sheep with the cyclopia, uh, exposure to that alkaloid uh, between day 13 and 14 causes these cyclops, um, the development of these cyclops lambs.
0: But if Sorry, you... Rory, I know I should probably know this, but what, what is that? Why would you want to give your sheep... That... Oh, no, it,
2: it's it's a it's a it's a weed basically right um if they're exposed day 13 14 you have this extreme teratogenic effect if you expose the sheep on day 15 you don't see any problems so you know surely presumably um those sorts of effects apply in the equine species too and we just don't know
0: What's the, what's the plant
2: Uh, that that causes it's, it's a, it's, this is in California. Um, it's, it's actually a Veratrum californicum, um, but it produces cyclopamine, which is a, an alkaloid, a steroidal
0: alkaloid. But that's only recognized in sheep. It's not recognized in horses.
2: No, it's just an example. And we just don't have the, the knowledge or the, the information. But fair enough. We've got to assume they're they're vulnerable at, at especially during those early developmental phases.
0: Thanks very much, both of you, for tackling what I thought might be a really difficult subject. But I think um I think we can all take something from that. Going going back to to the the, the categories of things that can cause disorders of sexual development. Their third one was idiopathic. Anything that any particular examples, James, in this category that you you think are prudent to draw attention to?
1: Well, yeah, we know of some of these key examples. Obviously, as we've said previously, um, we just don't have the depth of knowledge to explain all cases. I mean, we we talked then about cyclopic lambs. We had a it's quite a disturbing case, but a, a live fowl born which was a, was like cyclopic as well. You know, I just had one conjoined eye, uh, which was which was relatively shocking. But we, you know, we reviewed that mare's history and we couldn't see any reason why that had occurred. But but science is moving forward all the time. I mean, we in those categories we talked about, you know, time at which you can detect them as well. You can detect some of them, like hydrops that occur prior to being born. Some that are present and you detect them at birth, like a cleft palate and then others that are only detected later in life, such as these sort of vaginal septae that we were talking about in the paper. But, you know, we're just learning about some hydrops cases that there are actually genetic abnormalities, which which might be affecting not only the fetus, but the placenta. And hydrops cases, we know that, you know, you, they can be associated with abnormalities of the fetal head, because of the swallowing reflex, um, and the circulation of allantoic fluids. So, you know, science is moving forward and giving us some explanation for some of these things that we previously were unexplained. So unless you're going to do the investigation, most of them are going to be idiopathic. If you can do some karyotypic e- evaluation, looking at chromosomes, we might find some reasons for them. But when it comes to the exogenous compounds, really, most of that is is either proven examples from other species or, or guesswork.
0: Drawn us back to to the article, the article is female caudal reproductive tract tract abnormalities. Um I wonder if we might moving um from a, a cranial to a caudal direction go through some examples of these in different parts of the tract. So Rory, um we starting with the uterus, um any particular um examples you'd like to make note of here? Well I we've
2: we've We've dealt with the the ovaries to an extent um, so yes, I mean, if working back from the ovaries to the oviduct and uterine horns, you can have uh, a syndrome called segmental aplasia of the duct. ducts um, and in these cases, you basically don't while the uterus should be a nice symmetrical Y shape with a body and two horns. In these cases with segmental aplasia, you'll have a blind ending portion. You know, you might have an isolated section of horn um, free floating within the broad ligament, which is otherwise anatomically normal, just not joined up with the rest of the uterus. Um, Working back, you can have. Um, We're well, working right back to the cervix. You can have cervical duplication. You can have
0: hang on, that's going to be that's going to be James's area. Oh, sorry. Steady, steady.
2: Sorry. <laughs> the, hey. the reason I raise that is because if you have two cervixes, often you'll have two uterine bodies connected to two uterine horns or a horn each. Basically, so it, it's all about reflecting back to what James described with these. Paramesenteric ducts or the, the malarian ducts fusing at the right point to form the uterine body, one cervix and one cranial vagina.
0: Are there any breed predispositions to a- aplasia of the uterus?
2: The the yes, yeah, segmental aplasia is more commonly seen in your Shire type breeds, your Shires and Clydesdales, um, and and otherwise, you know, they 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 have normal estrous cycles. They appear to be otherwise fertile. fertile the, 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 just the lumens of the uterine body and horns just don't join up in the right places. Well I, 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 one point worth mentioning on that topic actually is if you have an isolated section of uterus which is functioning normally and a normal functioning uterus in, in estrus produces significant amounts of fluid. Uh, which exit via lymphatics, but largely via an open cervix. So these um, section, isolated blind-ending sections of uterus can produce large quantities of fluid over time, which which fill up um, into a, a sizable balloon. And uh, I guess one point that should be made relevant to to day-to-day practice is it, it could feel like a pregnancy
0: what do you do with that How can you sort it
2: you no i mean it, it would be it would be if it's causing problems um, you would need to have uh, a hysterectomy of that section and you, you might find that that the remaining portion of of uterus is perfectly functional and capable of maintaining pregnancy albeit um, and will not go into the placentation because that's a whole Another topic, but you would expect the the folds produced to be significantly smaller than normal.
0: James, maybe maybe you could move us on in a caudal direction to the the cervix.
1: Yeah, it, as Rory said, it it's it, sort of so closely linked because of their origins. We've got these two tubes joining, joining together, so the abnormalities that happen to the uterus sort of tie the cervix in as well. You know, to to the cases that have actually two physical services. Which may go into two separate horns, or may go into a, you know, a single uterine lumen, and and, and as when we're getting back to the cervix, that's where it starts to get a bit grey, because we don't know where this um, urogenital sinus and this va- the vaginal plate and its dissolution into this tubular vagina ends and the paramesonephric ducts start, but given that a lot of these when we're moving, I'm going to move you on, Ewan, because it's sort of, it's moving me that way. If we then move into the vagina, we know that a lot of these septi that occur, especially in horses, different different maybe for other species, but in the horses, they're, they're midline and they're vertical, running like a curtain. So it sort of implies that that is the wall where those two paramezinephric ducts joined, which just never properly dissolved and you're left with this vestigial remnant, if you like, uh, this embryological remnant that is is providing no use, but maybe causing a problem. And, you know, we, we do see those clinically in mares, sometimes inconsequentially. Uh, really easy to miss as well, unless you you know you physically put your hand in a vagina. You pass a specular, a tubular speculum, you might just glide straight past it. Um, and so some of these are never noticed. And, and I guess if a mare did, if she was conceived by AI, um, then these may just tear at falling and you might be none the wiser. And they are, you know, they're in contrast to these things are definitely in contrast to sort of these adhesions that you can see at funny angles when when mares have had a falling trauma. These are, these are right in the middle, generally fine strands which are physically and normally healthy as opposed to sort of bands or curtains of irregular looking um, fibrous tissue as a result of vaginal adhesions.
0: You beat me to it. I was going to ask about that because your article talks about um, vaginosepti being a, a almost exclusively encountered in, in maiden females, and and them being quite easily confused with um, postpartum trauma.
1: Yes, because they can be very fine. You know, they're, they're almost not sometimes just only the diameter of a pencil. Okay, when you've you you know you've looked at lots of mares, then we do have experience. I did have experience of a racing filly that uh, had a very poor. Uh, conformation behind and um, it had a, a long sheet it must have been about 10 centimeters long a thin relatively thin sheet dividing the vagina in 50 percent you know it was right in the middle um, and then at the end of that was an opening where the cervix was where there was a single cervix normal uterus and normal ovaries now if that mare was presented for natural breeding i think the stallion would have struggled you know the coitus wouldn't have been a smooth process But in in some of these, you know, they're they're presenting to a vet for breeding and they're detected on the first vaginal examination.
0: Moving on again, um, can we talk a wee bit about the hymen, Rory? Yeah,
2: we can indeed. I mean, it it,
0: sort of ties in
2: quite nicely to what James was describing there. I mean, we commonly... um, Perform reproductive evaluations of three-year-old fillies, um, sometimes two-year-olds, for sales purposes, um, and you know maiden fillies in training that that are being put in foal while racing, and, and it's so common that we will encounter these uh, hymenal, um, hymenal tissue really in in, in all sorts of. Um, shapes and sizes, James, would you agree? I mean, it, it's, it's often it's, it's very minor. There's maybe just a little strand from dors- from uh, dorsal to ventral vagina, um, which breaks down very easily by hand and causes very little discomfort. And then occasionally you'll put your hand in or your speculum and you'll see uh, a hymen is, is almost fully intact just with a, a small hole and takes some some work to break down,
1: and in human medicine, they refer to that 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 latter one that you described as a microperforate hymen, mm. and they are they can be problematic because I suppose it leads us on to what is the actual function of the hymen. I mean, embryologically, it's it's an area where you know uh, structures of different embryological origin are joining together, and it, it is a place that vestibular vaginal fold where the hymen sits. Which is one of those such areas, and lots of different orientations of the hymenal tissue, from 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 what Rory described to the uh, imperforate hymen, which is um, or persistent hymen, which we sometimes refer to it as, which can actually be really, really quite thick and fleshy. You know, good few millimeters thick, and in those cases. They, it, it's almost like a blind ending. It's like as we talked about earlier, it's a blind ending structure. So the vestibule doesn't go anywhere, and it's only through further examination, um, transrectal ultrasound, and an evaluation of what's behind that area that can lead you to conclude that it's actually a persistent hymen structure. And and they don't break down so easy, but they are also in the rare category. You know, we relatively commonly encounter weird shapes and forms of of hymen tissue but the persistent hymen is probably yeah one in a thousand or less um, in number
2: but it's it's worth stressing because it is something um, any vet could be presented with out of the blue even if they're not doing a significant amount of stud work they could be called to evaluate a filly with what looks like her bladder prolapsing out her back in and certainly that's what I thought when I was a young vet called to my first uh, persistent hymen Um, and I referred her in and the surgeon Tom Russell there, he won't listen to this that's for sure, Um, he made sure I didn't make the same mistake again but yeah it it goes back to all the, the, the uterus and the vagina, they're exudative, they produce a lot of fluid and eventually if this if this hymen is particularly thick and doesn't break down, all that this this fluid backs up behind it and it can literally bulge
0: through the the vulval lips. Well, and it's, the, sorry to interrupt you, Rory, what's what is the point of the hymen?
2: It it's that's the million dollar question. I mean throughout my training and and th- most of the reading I've done, you're led to believe it's it's a very deliberate evolutionary structure to provide some sort of protection to the to the structures cranial to that the the um, infantile cervix which you know doesn't have the competency to open and close and provide a barrier um, to ascending infection into the uterus so that that's what I believed until more recent years where I've just discovered that Virtually every filly, even very young fillies, you know, if you post mortem a a, a foal, for example, the likelihood is the hymen's already broken. Um. So I, I I personally believe persistent hymen, as James has said, is is rare, and it's when it's very thickened, and the actual hymen itself, in normal situations, breaks pretty pretty
0: early, probably. Um, due to growth. Is it fair to say then that so uh, an instance of that, I say a two-year-old um, thoroughbred filly that presented for for pre-sale breeding soundness? Uh, your article says that in majority of those cases the the hymen will already be ruptured. Yeah, um, but it
2: could it could just be a micro perforate, as James said. It could just be a tiny hole which is permitting. Um, the the vaginal and uterine fluids to escape, so it's not causing a problem.
0: So, but if we if we as vets just suggest that the the purpose of the hymen is to protect the the immature cranial reproductive tract, is it then of consequence or not that that these young animals are that are of presented for for breeding soundness evaluation have them ruptured? Is does, does that is that a mutually exclusive scenario? I I would expect them
2: all to be ruptured and that to be entirely normal. And if I encountered a two year old with and I, I was convinced I couldn't see any hole in it whatsoever, I would break it myself. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I don't believe that it's a necessary piece of anatomy to protect what's in front of it anymore I I don't know what you think James
1: well I suppose it's an interesting concept to to think you know but we've influenced horse breeding haven't we and we've influenced lots of breeding of other domesticated species I suppose we'd have to look at the incidence of hymen retention in something like the Przewalski's horse to to know whether or not you know um, evolution desired them to keep that but we've also had a divergence I mean if you pick the thoroughbred the the, the perineal conformation has changed over the years with breeding and perhaps that those changes and those physical um, attributes that we're now conveying on those breeds uh, are potentially resulting in them having uh, you know, a prematurely broken hymen. Um, it's difficult to know. I mean mm. we certainly the breed it's the breeding and potentially the inbreeding not necessarily intentionally but just because of the reduced gene, gene pools of some of these breeds such as the Clydesdale and the Shire um that's that's leading to some of these abnormalities being found more frequently in said breeds
0: yeah Let's go back to think about um, the McCarthy article. Um, I wondered if we might discuss any predisposing factors to uterine infection and in, in Pyometra in, in this case. Yes,
2: yeah, so what we've just discussed leads us on quite nicely to Pyometra. Now, this was a, a, an unusual case because uh, the, the horse was so young but if we consider the pathogenesis um, with pyometra in horses as opposed to in cows and, and bitches where it's always associated with a CL and, and progesterone dominance and the changes in uterine environment associated with that, which, which make them more vulnerable to infection. So in horses, what we typically see, not all instances, but what we typically see um, when we see cases of pyometra is some sort of outflow obstruction, usually involving the cervix. So in the McCarthy case, they proposed that this vaginal septum uh, was potentially obstructing the cervix to an extent um, which which permitted this um, infection to really um, Propagate.
0: And placentitis was in, was involved in that case as well, James, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's that's correct. We, we, we're sort of talking about this case in reverse, which is quite nice, because we're talking about this the lack of the hymen, the potential for this septum. I mean, the McCarthy paper did did, did discuss one point. It compared to a, a paper as sept, septae in rats, where they had uterine infections. But septae in rats... Were actually um, rather than being longitudinal septae, they were transverse septae, a little bit like hymen t- persistent hymen tissue, just with little little holes in it. So it, they they could definitely act as outflow obstructions from the womb. But this isn't this was so young that it wasn't an outflow issue. This infection got in there somehow, and it, not only did the mare reportedly in the in in the case that they presented have a suspect placentitis. Um, as a res- and diagnosed by an increased CTUP and separation of the placenta at the cervical pole. So classical findings for a placentitis. So- also-
0: Sorry, James, just explain that a wee bit more.
1: Okay, so most of the placentitis cases in mares are, are an ascending infection via the cervix. So in- infection gets breaks down, the goes through the vulval barrier, gets past the vestibular vaginal fold and manages to get into the cervix. And when it gets into the cervix, it can infect the placenta around the cervical pole. So the mare bagged up early, which is a, is a sign of uh, of a problem with the pregnancy, impending abortion for a variety of reasons. But uh, as good clinicians, they they looked first for a placentitis, and they looked they transrectally they palpated. There was a, a foal there moving around, and then they put the scanner in, and then they looked at the thickness. Of the combined thickness of the uterus and placenta together around the area of the cervix, and we've got some standard measures for that. So we know in normal mares that don't have placentitis what their placental thickness should be, and it should never really be any more at term less than at more than twelve millimeters. Estimates vary depending on breed, but for the stage of gestation that this mare was at and the vet's reference ranges, it had a thickened placenta. Um, so they diagnosed placental infection and beyond that not only did it have a thickened placenta there was areas of separation between the the uterus and the placenta and that's what infection can do it can can form sort of undermine the placenta and cause it to separate away so that can ultimately if that's unmanaged that leads to abortion through sepsis um, infection of the fetal fluids and potentially sepsis, sepsis of the unborn foal so there was a window there where that foal could have been inoculated with bacteria, uh, strep, strep, strep uh, zoo uh, and strep equisimulus. Um, so two streps, streps are common in placentitis. But not only that, the foal was a bit weak after birth and spent a lot of time recumbent, which, which the two factors there which may have led to some inoculation of that juvenile reproductive tract. But there was an interesting fact, wasn't there, Rory, about its treatment with trimodiazine.
2: Yeah they used TMPs uh, to treat the placentitis which is logical because we know TMPs concentrates in in fetal fluids and and is a is a, is the mainstay really um, for most of us with these cases and the the bacteria isolated was sensitive to TMPs but we we had this um, vast quantity of enspecified purulent material in the uterus of the foal and if we're suggesting the foal was infected in utero we don't know but if it was potentially the tmps didn't work in that particular site because we know it's not as effective in a purulent environment
0: what would your antimicrobial of choice be in a case of placentitis
2: well as i've just said we 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 love tmps it's broad spectrum it it crosses the placenta. It reaches MIC in the fetal fluids. It reaches fetal tissues, and it's usually effective against the bacteria we commonly see. I mean, we commonly see strep zyeps. That would be the most common, and that's certainly what um, what they had in this case. And um, but but antibiotics are absolutely not um, all. the the only drugs we use in in treatment of placentitis. I mean, control of infection is important, um, but the critical thing is to downregulate the the whole inflammatory cascade. Um, Pro-inflammatory cytokines are probably the major um, issue you've got to deal with. So non-steroidals are are absolutely vital. So commonly, bute. Um, There's been some work done on aspirin. And, and there, there's the added benefit with aspirin is potentially increased blood supply to the to the uterus itself. Um, we also sometimes use pentoxifylline, which has some anti-inflammatory uh, and rheolytic benefits. It does cross the placenta. It does get into the fetal fluids. We're not a hundred percent sure whether it it provided a great deal of benefit or not. But often these cases, um, one thing we've not discussed is how the mares present. Typically with um, premature udder development, Um, they might wax up early. So if you have accurate dates and a mare has udder development early, the first thing you're doing is ruling out placentitis. and the other thing we we often use is is regumate, so ultranigest, which um, helps to maintain uh, myometrial quiescence. So it down-regulates prostaglandin production, which is critical to um, uterine contractions. Um, so and it's all about delaying an inevitable parturition because ultranigest will not block parturition, but we think um in supporting the myometrial quiescence um that we're delaying that and, and 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 basically giving the the full sufficient time to to acquire fatal readiness for for the ex utero environment
0: here we go, plus placentitis in a nutshell i'm um, I'm conscious that um that our podcast is getting getting quite long now so. I think um, unless either of you have any really pertinent points that you'd like to make, um, do you?
2: Uh, I would just like to give a quick shout-out to Kent University because um, we briefly touched on karyotyping. Traditionally, we would have sent our samples to the States uh, for analysis, Um, but luckily we now have... um, a site in the country and they're, they're, they'll they're do an excellent job. Not only will they do a simple karyotype, but um, they can do chromosome binding and uh, chromosome banding, sorry, and uh, fluorescence in situ hybridization and, and PCRs and things. So if if your, your unusual case, say, isn't as basic as having one missing X chromosome, they've got the tools at their disposal to dig deep into um into all that chromosomal material and, and hopefully get to your answer. So it's professor Darren Griffin and his PhD student, Lisa Bosman that we've worked with. Um, and, and they're absolutely great. So I just wanted to give them a, a shout out and, and let everyone know that they're available. And if there are any peculiar cases, trust your instincts. Um, if you can't see any follicles in those ovaries over a, over a period of time or if the if the genitalia look in any way bizarre you know get a heparin blood sample
0: and and get it into those guys there we go gentlemen um both thank you both very much and thank you very much to everyone who's listened to this all the best take care
1: For listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward eve.